Hey, Al. Hey, Barry. What's the best-selling genre of book in Australia? What? Elf help books. It's time for Compelled Duel. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Compelled Duel. I'm Barry. And I'm Al. And we are a single-player, co-DM'd D&D 5e actual play podcast. Previously on Compelled Duel. No time to think, no time to talk. Leo's gonna football tackle him. Get him off of me! How dare you? I am the voice of Kimmerl! Yeah, and he's a punk-ass bitch, too. You don't scare me. Does this make you feel good? Make you feel tough, like a big man? I didn't make this mess. So why do I feel like I'm the one that has to clean it up? Because you're the only one here that has cleaning it up as an option. You didn't make this mess, but it was made for your benefit. I don't know what to do. What not to do is to hide up here while people need you. Nothing left to do but smoke them out, I suppose. (sighs) Yeah, we're doing this, aren't we? We're doing this. Can somebody tell me that we're doing this? With a creak and the screech of metal sliding over itself, the big suit of armor against the wall is starting to move. Go get him, honey. Zed grins wide and bright and extremely smug. And then he just uppercuts this thing, knocks the helmet off, and it goes flying out the window. And the armor falls into pieces. Yes! Yes! (laughs) Yes! This skull is wearing a golden gem-studded circlet. You know what, old man, this is all your fault. I'll be taking this. It's not like you're using it. You have just picked up a magic item called the Circlet of Consequence. What are we all standing around up here for? We've got work to do. So, Fee... You are standing outside the defunct lighthouse of Luxtogallen in the dead of night with several of your party members surrounding you. Not too long ago, your brother and his specialized strike team disappeared inside the building, instructing you not to follow. I would like you to update me on your positioning. Where is everybody? Uh, okay. Out of the six of us, Fen is the hardiest and the most likely to stop somebody coming out of the tower. So he's going to be right in front of the entrance at the bottom of the front steps. Eleonora can also take a couple licks. She's behind Fen and off to the side. And I think Kalesa's back to back with her knives out. Not in the direct line of fire, but close enough that she can get a couple stabs in if she needs to. 
Sabine is off to the side, kind of hiding among the trees, ready to break off a couple heels when we inevitably need them. The road in front of the lighthouse goes off in one direction to the docks and in one direction kind of into the forest. So we're going to have the captain on the side of the road leading down to the docks because he is kind of a close range fighter. He can make quick work of anybody that gets past Fen and he'll be closer to Sabine if he needs heals. And I think Fee's gonna back up the road going the other direction because she can start off just kind of laying down an area of effect and that's gonna be easier if she's not close to anybody else. You all fall back into these battle-ready positions. A long period of time passes as you are looking up at this intimidating dark tower. And then you see some absolute home alone shit start to happen from inside. There are a couple of windows in this tower that are still lit up. People that are in their rooms winding down for the night. And as you all stand there, waiting, you see this noxious lime green smoke start to leach out from under the windowsills and flow down the sides of the tower, followed by distant sounds of coughing and screaming and panicked shouts. Another few moments pass, and then you see the two big double doors at the front of the lighthouse bust open, and behind them are two priests holding a candelabra that they have used as a battering ram. The one in the front drops this candelabra to the ground, puts both hands up, and yells, Oh, Kimbrels, holy humorous, we're safe! Everybody run for your life! This massive, 10 foot across, 40 foot high column of silvery, grayish, necrotic, divine fire slams down into the floor directly inside the doors of the lighthouse. There is just this roar of fire that dims away after a second to a crackle. And as the light fades, you see these two priests standing there. Just blackened, ashy husks that crumble into dust and then blow away like a cartoon. You all sort of stand there in stunned silence. And after a few more seconds, Eleonora blinks slowly and goes, Oh my god, Leo. And now your team will be doing its job and we will be rolling initiative. Okay, Figot. Not great, but it's a 19. Okay, and I'd also like you to roll initiative for our six combatants, because you will be playing them, and I will be playing everyone else. Huh, that's what you call a, uh, a spread, huh? <laughs> Got a nat 20 and a nat 1, so a 22 and a 3, and then... Two 18s, a 13, and a 5. 
Okay, the captain got a 24, not bad. Sabine got a 19. Kalesa got a 7. Eleonora got an 8. Ladies, will you stop making eyes at each other long enough to roll initiative, please? (laughs) Fen got a 21. Respectable. So, because of our homebrew rule, you get to go first, because the first of these priests that rolled a nat 20 gets around on all of us. What are you doing? The priests, being uh, thoroughly intimidated by the array of combatants outside of their home, and also the fact that several of their fellows just got charbroiled, <laughs> are going to use a fun new mechanic where they're going to roll a d20 at the beginning of at least their first turn, and if I roll below a 10, they're going to run. If I roll above a 10, they're going to fight. So, let's see what the first one's doing. Ooh! 17, okay. This first guy recovers from the surprise of seeing everyone, and he's gonna raise his holy symbol and make a slashing motion and then jab it in Fen's direction. And out of it comes a ray of sickness. So I'm going to roll to hit against Fen's AC. Hmm, dirty 20. Yeah, that's going to hit Fen. So go ahead and roll me... Um, damage for ray of sickness is usually 2d8 poison, right? Uh, Yeah, at its base level. Cool, Fen's Australian, so... Make that 4d8 poison damage. Uh, That's 24 poison damage. Ouch. Okay, and now Fen has to roll a con save with disadvantage because it's against the poisoned condition. Uh, What is the priest's spell save DC? 14. Okay, Fen gets plus 10 to con saves. Come on, buddy, roll a 4. Roll two things higher than a 4. Yes! Ah! A 7 and a 9! <laughs> Even the low rolls a 17, so Fen is not poisoned. This spell hits Fen right in the breastplate, and you see this poisonous, sick-looking goo splash and sizzle against the metal. He takes a decent amount of damage from that, but the thing is that at this level, Fen has almost 200 max HP. So it doesn't actually hurt him that bad. And he just sort of looks down at where there is poisonous, nasty magic sizzling away at his armor, brushes it away with one gauntleted hand, and looks up at this priest like, Really? From a window far overhead, you hear a wolf whistle, and Mia Saunders is leaning out into the night, looking down at all the carnage below. From the same space in this tower, you hear a door opening and a battle cry, and Mia just reaches up to stab a dude in the face without even turning to look, and yells out the window, Go get him, stud! Fen grits his teeth and hefts his axe once more. How about you go get him so I don't have to? And then it's the captain's turn. I'm looking at our map, and 
even if the captain used his cunning action to double dash, he would just barely get up into melee range with all these priests. And it would mean abandoning that escape route and letting people run off, essentially. He considers this for a little while, and (laughs) goes into his starter adventurer's inventory at a small bag on his belt, and just pulls out a bag of marbles. Technically, according to the PHB, it's a bag of ball bearings (laughs) that covers a 10 by 10 foot square. (laughs) And he just dumps it on the ground right behind him. So if anybody does manage to make it past him, that they'll just slip on it and eat shit. (laughs) We're on a hill! Yeah, well, if they run down the hill far enough, they're gonna slip on a ball bearing eventually. (laughs) I love the captain so much. He's so stupid. That's what he does with his entire turn. He just surveys the situation happening, pulls a fucking bag of marbles out of his bag, and just dumps it out. (laughs) clattering on the ground as they roll away. (laughs) Fee uses her free action to yell down the hill, What are you doing? The captain just grins up at you and shrugs, weighing his rapier in his free hand that's not dumping marbles all over the road. Mischief and bastardry, lass. What else am I good at? I'm in love with you. The captain winks at you. And because our first bonus round from that nat 20 is over, our priest friend that just tried to poison Fen is now up again. What is he doing? Since Fen just brushed off that ray of sickness, I'm going to have this priest roll again to see if he's running or fighting. That's an 11. He's fighting. Seeing that that first level ray of sickness didn't do anything, our priest friend is going to cast another one at fourth level. Six heat on the die, that absolutely hits Fen. That is a total of 52 damage. Oh no! Well, that hurt Fen, but he's still not under 100 hit points yet. I'm gonna roll a disadvantaged con save to see if he's poisoned. <laughs> um, the low one of those is a 27. So he's good. He takes all this damage, but through sheer constitution and will, steamrolls his way through this attempted poison effect again. And then it's Fen's turn, so safe to say he has a little bit of beef with the guy that just broke off two big bad ray of sicknesses on him. He's going to move up the stairs to the entrance of the lighthouse, get around on this guy's other side so none of his buddies have a flank, and unload three attacks. 26, 21, and 23 to hit. Those will all do it. That's going to be 3d8 plus 15 damage. So that's 14 damage on the dice, plus 15 is 29. And you know what? Fuck it. He's going to burn his action surge. Three more attacks. 28, 26, 23. Three more hits. So that's another 3d8 plus 15 damage. 
36 damage. Fen runs up these steps, absolutely lays into this guy with his battle axe, and takes him down from full health to six hit points in one round. In between swings and sprays of blood, he's just yelling, You know what? I'm done! I'm tired! I'm tired of being nice! (laughs) She puts her arms up and cheers. And now it's Sabine's turn. She is not emerging from where she is, just beyond the tree line where she retreated so she could run heels on you guys, but you do hear a jingle of bells and see a ball of fire appear in her hand as she just launches a firebolt cantrip at this guy that Fen has just brutalized. I'm gonna roll to hit. 25. So that's 3d10 fire damage. Dead. Dead and gone. Fen is so busy laying into this guy with his battle axe and just screaming in rage and yelling about his deep-seated issues with his dad that he does not even notice. This ball of fire that launches out from the tree line hits the guy in the chest and he just falls dead before Fen is even done whacking him. As her bonus action from the trees, Sabine yells, Fen, I know you and I have had our differences before, but I'm gonna be real with you, that was hot. And she gives Fen bardic inspiration. And Fee, now you're up, what are you doing? Fee doesn't want to move closer to the tower because she is still kind of holding the line on the road. So what she's gonna do is she's gonna drop a storm sphere right in front of the door where all of these priests are kind of gathered up. So all five of these priests are going to make strength saving throws, to which they get nothing, against Fee Spell Safety C, which is a 19. Would you look at that? The highest roll was an 18, which doesn't make it. All of them fail. So they're all going to take 2d6 bludgeoning damage for entering the Storm Sphere. 7 bludgeoning damage. And the Sphere is difficult terrain, so their movement is halved. And as a bonus action, I'm going to have a bolt of lightning hit one of them. So I'm going to make a ranged spell attack on the one that's closest to Fen. And because they're in the sphere, I get advantage. That's a 28. That is absolutely going to do it. That's a further 15 lightning damage. And now it's time for a bunch of the priests to go. So the one that Fee just struck with lightning has to go ahead and roll a d20 to see if they're going to run or fight. It's above a 10, they're gonna fight. This priest is gonna run up on Fen and make two melee attacks with their holy symbol. First one, not gonna hit. Second one, 19 on the die, that is absolutely gonna hit Fen, okay. So that's gonna be 1d6 plus two damage from the knife itself seven and then this particular class of high-ranking priests have poison weapons so that's going to be an additional 10d6 poison damage oh my god 28 poison damage for a total of 35 ow 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 cool fen didn't like that he's under 100 hit points now And at the end of their turn, this priest is going to go ahead and roll another strength saving throw, which they get nothing to. Three. 
So that's another 2d6 damage. Three, also. And then it's the next priest, so we're gonna roll to see whether they fight or run. Damn! Eleven, they're gonna fight, okay. So they are also going to run up on Fen, and they have a flank, so let's see about this first melee attack. That's a miss, that's a 17. Second one, also with advantage. Damn. Damn it, okay. That was a 24 that's gonna hit. So that's gonna be 1d6 plus 2 damage for the knife itself. Three. And then it's 10d6 poison damage. That's 35 poison damage, plus 3 is 38 damage uh, for that one. Uh, that one also ends their turn in the Storm Sphere, so let's see about a strength save. Nope, that's 12. So 2d6 bludgeoning damage is 7. And now it's the third priest in a row in the initiative. <laughs> Do you fight or do you run like a dog? You fight. <laughs> no! This particular priest saw Fee cast that storm sphere and is seeing how much damage it's doing to their compatriots, so they are going to try to hit her with a ray of sickness at fourth level. <laughs> that certainly didn't hit, so that's that priest's action. They're going to go ahead and use their movement to try to get out of the storm sphere, which they can certainly do. Uh, they're going to edge around this sort of stone walkway surrounding the lighthouse. And I think they just jump off of it onto the ground. <laughs> so I'm going to go ahead and roll decks to see how they land. Otherwise, they will be prone next turn. Ah, that's fine. So now it's Eleonora's turn. And... Because she can't really move up on anyone right now because of the fuck-off big storm sphere around the front of this lighthouse. She looks back and forth frantically at the situation, and then lashes out with her sword and casts a chromatic orb at the most hurt of the two priests that are up on Fen. That's a 26, that's gonna do it. And because Eleonora has been around Astrarians for some time and knows what poison damage does to them, she's going to elect to do poison damage on this chromatic orb. As a free action, Fee yells, You can do magic? I've been able to do magic since season one, not that anybody cared to fucking ask! Uh, 52 poison damage. That is more than enough to kill this priest. He's winding up to take another stab at a very hurt-looking fen and just gets nailed in the back with this bright green poisonous chromatic orb. Face plants onto the ground, dead. And now it's Kalesa, who also cannot move into close range due to the storm sphere. But what she can do is break off a third-level Scorching Ray at the priest who rolled a nat one. So she gets four rays, so four separate spell attacks on this one guy because she's aiming all of the spell's power at him. Let me roll that. 
19, 22, 18, 14. So three of those hit. The three rays that do hit each do 2d6 fire damage, so that's going to be a total of 66 fire damage. 22 fire damage from the Scorching Ray. And then for her bonus action, she's going to do a fun druid thing. She breaks off this Scorching Ray spell. Four beams of light shoot out of the end of one of her daggers, one of which goes wide, but three of which absolutely nail one of these priests. And then she cups her free hand up to her mouth, turns back to the tree line and yells, Bernie, go! And out of this smoke-filled forest, Kalesa's wildfire spirit, Bernie Cinders, appears, swoops up and cuts into the melee directly in front of Fen and looks at the priest that he's facing off with. This little spirit reaches up to grab Fen's hand, looks up with its crackling head at this priest and goes, I am once again asking for you to die! (laughs) And then a fun thing that wildfire spirits can do is they can teleport willing creatures up to 15 feet away, so it's gonna zap Fen down away from the lighthouse and do some damage to the priest left behind. I'm gonna need this priest to roll me a DC 14 dexterity saving throw. Five! That won't do it. The priest takes 1d6 plus 5 fire damage as Bernie Cinders spirits Fen away 15 feet. 9. Fen, appearing in a bloom of fire down on the grass next to the lighthouse, looks over his shoulder and goes, Uh, thanks, Kalesa. Fee, as all of this carnage unfolds, you can see through the swirling winds and crashing lightning of your storm sphere into the bottom floor of this lighthouse. It is absolute chaos. There are still straggling priests trying to get down the big spiral staircase. You see that Mia has made their way down to this bottom floor and is just cutting people down as fast as they can make it down the stairs. Leo and Zed have gone back to back in front of the door, fighting off anybody else that's trying to make it out. They both look beat to hell. Leo appears to have run out of all of his magic. He's got his knife and his cutlass out and is just going at people full martial combat. You watch one guy almost make it out, and then Adana comes out of the air as she drops out of a rope trick spell and just gets on his back like a spider monkey with a knife and takes him down. And to end our first round of combat, our last two priests are up. Okay, gonna roll for the first one, see if they run or fight. Nat 20, they fight so hard! (laughs) And this priest is gonna use a fun ability that they have. Let me roll a percentile dice real quick. That'll do it. This priest is going to use an ability that they have called Summon Demon. So they raise their knife high, gleaming with purpley silver magical light, and bring it down in a slashing motion. And from the tip of their knife, a sort of rip opens in reality. And out of it, 
steps a hulking mass of writhing, boiling darkness and misshapen, cobbled-together bones. This bone demon kind of jitters and then appears at the spot where this priest wills it, which is in the middle of Eleonora, Kalesa, Sabine, Fen, and fucking Bernie Sanders. That was that priest's action. So they're going to use their movement to try to run out of the storm sphere. And they have just enough movement to do it. They run onto this kind of front stoop of the lighthouse above the stairs. Realize that the stairs are going to take them more through this storm sphere. So they hop off the front step and just book it. So they are not ending. They're turning the storm sphere. And then the the last priest rolled a natural one to initiative. So with our homebrew rules, they don't get to do anything. They're just going to roll a save against the storm sphere. Nope. 2d6 damage. 3 damage. And then I'm going to roll initiative for the bone demon. 13. Okay. And now we're starting off our next round. With the captain, who just watched a bone demon pop up in very close proximity to his wife. He's been pretty useless for this whole round of combat. I think he was, like, distracting himself by drawing pictures in the dirt with his rapier when this happened. And he just looks up, eyes going wide, sucks in a deep breath. Kivas fucking thunder, I did not sign up for this! And then he's going to run all the way up on this bone demon and try to stab it. Does a 26 hit the bone demon's armor class? Yes, it does. Cool. So because the captain and the bone demon don't have anyone else within five feet of them, he's going to get to use rakish audacity from his swashbuckler stat block and add sneak attack onto this. So it's going to be 1d8 plus 8d6 plus 5. 31 damage. No, it doesn't. It takes 15. Because the bone demon has resistance to bludgeoning, piercing, and slashing damage from all non-magical weapons. (sighs) And the captain is one of the only two motherfuckers up in this bitch without a magical weapon. Great, cool, awesome. And then it's Fen, who is also going to let out a panicked yell and run down on the bone demon. Three attacks. Uh, All with advantage, because the captain is flanking. 24, that's a hit. 29, that's a hit. 25, that's a hit. So 3d8 plus 15. So that's a total of 29, but it is with a non-magical weapon, so that's going to round down to 14. And then it's Sabine. So Sabine is going to start out her turn by using a bonus action to utilize one of her bard features called Unbreakable Majesty. Okay, what does that do? Oh, I'm so glad you asked. 
As a bonus action, you can assume a majestic presence for one minute or until you are incapacitated. For the duration, whenever any creature tries to attack you for the first time on a turn, the attacker must make a charisma saving throw for Sabine it's DC 18. On a fail, it can't attack you on this turn, and it must choose a new target for its attack, or the attack is wasted. On a success, it can attack you on this turn, but it has disadvantage on any saving throw it makes against your spells on your next turn. So, mechanically, Sabine just becomes so cool and awesome and sexy that it's very hard to hit her. <laughs> Transmitters are so powerful. So true. Fee, it is very hard for you to see the magical effect of what Sabine does at the beginning of this turn because you always think that she is so cool and awesome and sexy as to be totally unapproachable. <laughs> but there is a vague shimmer of magic in the air around her as she activates this ability and then uses her action to move five feet out of the tree line to go smack Finn on the back with a fifth level cure wounds. So Fen gets 20 hit points back. And Fee, that brings us down to you. What are you doing? Uh, I'm... Shit, yeah, I'm gonna use one of my 6th level spell slots. I'm gonna cast Chain Lightning. I'm gonna use the priest that rolled a natural 1 on initiative as my first target. So that lets me target all four of the remaining priests. So I'm going to have all of them roll deck saves, and we'll see. <laughs> Not a single one of them beats my spell save DC. Okay, so they are all going to take 10d8 lightning damage. Fee raises her shield arm high, so the orb set into it is pointed straight up at the sky and then brings it down in one sharp motion and goes down to one knee. From the sky above, a lightning bolt shoots down and just hits this first priest. I'm gonna burn a sorcery point to use Empowered Spell. That is 63 damage. This priest is struck dead where they stand. And from their smoldering corpse, as it starts to fall, Three more arcs of lightning shoot out and hit all three of the priests that are still standing. Also for 63 damage. Okay, you call down this massive spreading web of lightning from the sky that arcs out into all of these remaining priests. The first one goes down dead immediately. And then as the arcs of electricity go out into the rest of them, another one falls down dead. And the other two are left hurt. Very hurt. On a scale from 1 to 71, how are these two remaining priests doing? Like they both have one hit point. Still on one knee with her shield in front of her. Fee raises one hand in a sweeping motion toward this bone demon that is entangling with both of her partners and her friends. And as her hand moves, a bolt of lightning follows it from out of the storm sphere to strike this bone monster directly in the center of its mass. I'm gonna roll to hit. 
because I might have just lied about that. <laughs> nope. Nope. 14 on the die. That's 25. So it's going to take 46 lightning damage. So that's going to be 16 lightning damage for the bone monster. And one of the two remaining priests is up and is going to cast Mass Cure Wounds. So they and their buddy are going to get back 3d8 plus 3 hit points. 16 hit points. Okay, so now it's the Bone Demon's turn. Sure is. Uh, It's going to go after the captain. So it raises onto what might be hind legs, and it's going to roll to hit on the captain with its slam attack. 19 on the die, that's going to hit. So it's going to do 1d6 plus 2 bludgeoning damage, 5 bludgeoning damage, and then 6d6 poison damage. 28 poison damage. So that's a total of 33 damage for the captain. It slams down on the captain and then shifts and raises again. And it's going to roll to hit again. That's a 10. That doesn't hit. Okay. And that's the bone monster's turn. All right. And now it's Eleonora's turn. And she's going to run up on the bone demon as well and try to hit it with a melee attack. That's a 19 on the die. That's a 29, baby. That's going to hit. So she's going to go ahead and apply a searing smite at third level to that. Um, Al, in your opinion, as a DM, does a longsword hit with a smite applied count as a magical weapon attack? I would say yes, because with the smite, you are effectively using your weapon as a spellcasting focus. Oh, this is going to be fun. So just for starters, with the smite applied, this thing is going to take 1d10 plus 3d6 plus 5 damage. So that will be 28 damage as Eleonora runs up on this thing. Holy fire licking up the blade of her longsword and smashes it into the side of this bone demon. Um, it's on fire now. It can either use its action at the beginning of its next turn or any subsequent turn to douse the flames, or at the beginning of those turns, it can make a constitution saving throw to end the spell. But if it fails, it's going to be taking 1d6 fire damage every round. And then Kalesa's up. She's going to... Keep doing what's been working so far. She's going to drop another third level Scorching Ray on this thing. Uh, So four rays, spell attack for every ray. 22, 17, 21, and a nat goddamn 20. So that's going to be a grand total of 10d6 fire damage, accounting for the crit. So that's 31 damage to the Bone Demon from this Scorching Ray. And then as a bonus action, she yells, Get him, Bernie! And her little wildfire spirit is going to roll to do one of its attacks on this Bone Demon. 
Dirty 20, that's gonna hit it. It does 1d6 plus 5 fire damage. 11. And now we are down to one of our remaining priest friends. The second remaining priest is also going to use their turn to cast Mass Cure Wounds. So that's another 3d8 plus 5. So the priests are both going to get back uh, 28 hit points. And then we're back at the top of the captain. What's he doing? Making a very offended noise and trying to stab the bone demon again with advantage because he has a flank on several sides. 28, that'll hit. So that's a d8 plus 8d6 plus 5. So that's 34 damage, which gets halved to 17. Okay. Uh, yeah, he stabs it real good. And then it's Fen's turn. What's he doing? Trying to fucking kill this thing. I'm rolling three attacks. 26, 21, 17, all three of those hit. This thing's dead. Mechanically, I don't even have to roll. It's dead. Yeah, with three attacks, Fen can't roll low enough to not hit it for four damage. (laughs) This hulking mass of void and bone hunkers down to the ground looking wildly around at all of the various combatants facing it it growls with an unearthly painful sound it hurts the ears of everybody that can hear it just this low odd noise And then the captain jabs his rapier up into the space where its ribs should be. It screams, sounding both almost like a person and like something that was never supposed to exist. And lurches back. And as it does, Fenandris Tormare leaps and his foot catches on one of these spurs of twisted mangled bone coming out of this creature and he brings his axe down in one sweeping strike and cuts its fucking head off the two pieces of this creature still on fire hit the ground and disperse into dust Um, and then it's Sabine's turn. We still have two priests up. Sabine's not going to move. She can't because Fee still has that storm sphere up that's in the way of her getting to these other priests. But she raises one hand and flicks her wrists, raises a middle finger as she does it, and with a big scintillating smile looks at the priest closest to her and goes how does it feel to know that you're gonna die absolutely pointlessly and uses her one and only eighth level spell slot to cast dissonant whispers that's gonna be a dc 18 whiz save my friend (laughs) okay i have to roll a 12 let's see no God, she's so hot. Anyway, (laughs) um, 
Cool. So that's going to be 10d6 psychic damage. 31. Okay, this priest is still standing, but they don't look happy about that. (laughs) And then it's Fee's turn, so she is going to turn and make kind of a lassoing motion with her free hand as she sweeps her shield out. And she's going to cast a witch bolt on the priest that Sabine didn't just hit at fifth level. So I'm going to roll to hit. Natural 20. Whoa. (laughs) (laughs) So that's going to be 10 D12 damage. That is a total of 67 lightning damage, which is more than enough to kill this other priest. They go down charred and smoking, dead before they hit the ground. And then it's Eleonora's turn. Eleonora brings her sword up high over her head, He-Man style, with both hands, and snaps it forward, casting Ice Knife towards this last remaining priest. I'm gonna roll to hit. 28, that's a hit. So, to start out, this last priest is gonna take 1d10 piercing damage. 6 as a big, sharp icicle blooms out of the tip of Eleonora's sword and goes flying right into their chest. They need to make me a DC 16 dexterity saving throw, please. Ah, that was an 18 on the die that's gonna do it. Okay, so they don't take damage from this ice knife exploding. I think it just gets them right in the chest. Eleonora goes down to one knee as the weight of this magic leaves her blade and shoots out across the battlefield, gets this priest in the chest, doesn't quite finish him off. But then Kalesa reaches out one hand over her shoulder, pointing her knife towards them, and shoots off a third level poison chromatic orb. I'm gonna roll to hit. 23. So that's 10d8. Yeah, they're dead. This last priest is dead. There's no way Kalesa could even feasibly roll low enough to not kill them. Woo! Fee, from the other side of this battlefield, you see Kalesa snap her knife hand forward and this big poisonous ball of energy bloom from the tip get this priest right in the chest on the tail of this big icicle that Eleonora just stabbed them with. And it's over. The outside of this lighthouse is extremely quiet for a moment. There's still a lot of commotion coming from inside. And as you look around, you can see that a few priests have made it out of this tower, running out through the woods, trying to get down the road to the docks, trying to get down the road on the other side behind you to whatever is out there. But as you watch, you see arrows of pure starlight shooting out of the trees and knocking these people down as they run. You see the flash of teleportation magic as Talindra is just zapping around through the woods, murking people. 
you see clouds of spores as Ravain is going through the trees. You have won the day. And as the rest of your party, in varying degrees of wellness, kind of gather together in front of these two open double front doors to the lighthouse, your brother staggers out, looking very worse for wear. But he walks over to you, reaches one hand up to squeeze at your shoulder, and with a big, broken smile, says, We did it. Leo, you and your allies have won this day. I would say every senior priest in the tower at Luxagon except for His Holiness the Hierophant, is extremely dead. Though I think the various pirates that came with you and Erevay, Ravain, Verity, and Solyndra took surrenders from some of the lower-ranked priests down in their little village. So you have probably two dozen priests prisoner now, mostly initiates. What are you doing? Um, am I surveying this situation right now of us having all these prisoners? Yeah, I think you're standing in kind of the middle of the initiate's housing, and they are all tied up in the square together. Huh. Okay. Anyone else seeing how this is a logistical problem? Erevé, I think, is standing next to you, surveying all of these prisoners. She adjusts her goggles and says, I mean, we weren't going to kill them after they surrendered. Nobody's calling anybody's moral fortitude into question here, Erevé. I'm just saying, where are we going to put them? My vote is not back in the tower with the giant death hole that eats people. The- the what? Oh no, 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 no. Not telling this story tonight. Sabine, also surveying these prisoners with you, (laughs) says, I mean, to be fair, people were living in the giant tower with the death hole. And drawing power from and feeding people to said giant death hole. I am so done talking about the death hole. Can we go back to the prisoners, please? I'm just saying they're tied up. And I'm just saying that I would prefer all of them tied up in a central secure location that doesn't have a- Nope, I said I was done talking about it from behind you, you hear the captain say, Ah, is death hole a euphemism for something? Or... And also from behind you, you hear Zed go, I'd like to roll to stomp on Zed's foot for having the audacity to laugh right now. Roll to hit. (laughs) Can I roll plus dex to stomp on his foot? It's not really strength-based. Yeah, go ahead. 23. Yeah, that'll hit. You stomp on Zed's foot. Given that it's an unarmed strike, you do one plus your strength modifier damage. And since your strength modifier is negative one, that's zero damage. But you've made your point. Leo doesn't look at Zed. He's just staring blankly ahead of him. (sighs) Okay. Sabine, you still have the big fancy invisible house active, right? Sabine gives you a weird look and says, 
yeah, it lasts for 24 hours. How big's the basement? It's not small. My mother enjoyed wine. Okay. Well, a magnificent mansion spell ticks all the boxes for human rights. Food, water, shelter. Who's to say we don't just chuck them in the wine cellar and let the creepy little ghost Sabines take care of them? Arave says, Are you suggesting we all take our trance 50 feet above the priest that could very easily untie themselves and come slit our throats? No. <laughs> No, what I'm suggesting is that we all take our trance in the big tower with the creepy death hole that eats people in it. There is a beat of silence, and then Kalesa, from the other side of the square, claps her hands and says, Great plan, everybody! Leo closes his eyes and takes a long moment to bring himself back from the edge of just going super saiyan from sheer force of his impotent frustration. (sighs) Kalesa, thank you for your input. I am trying my best! I am trying my best. The tower is the most secure spot on the island. It has the best vantage point to see anything that could potentially be coming at us. And, as far as I know, the creepy death hole can't hurt anything that's not deliberately thrown into it, which is more than I can say for these chuckle fucks. But I'd love to hear your plan, Kalesa. What's your plan? Kalesa puts both hands up and says, Hey man, my plan is to drink myself into forgetting this day and snuggle up with my girlfriend until I fall into my trance. I'm just pointing out that all of us trying to trance above something that you keep referring to as The death hole seems kind of fucked, and also, and she gestures broadly at the initiates tied up in front of you all, who's gonna stay up and watch all of them? Sabine puts a finger up and says, Uh, I can close the portal for the night easily. They're gonna get thrown out when the spell ends, but we just have to come back before then. Huh. Okay. Sabine, have I ever mentioned that I love when you say things and it just solves problems? Simultaneously, the captain says, right? And Fee says, God, me too. Sabine gestures at both of them and smiles and says, would you believe I get that a lot? Yeah, seems like our only saving graces at this point are... My boyfriend, sheer dumb luck and competent women. All right, somebody put these clowns in the invisible house, and then let's all go up to the tower. People start dragging these tied-up initiates like trust lambs to the magnificent mansion down on the beach. Have fun, boys. I've heard there's wine. And you all head up to the tower of Luxtagallan. The captain runs back to the ship to tell everybody that's still on there what's going on. And comes back with Lorelei, you, sunshine, and glasses in tow. You all head up to the tower, get inside. The captain walks across the lobby, looks at the ghost hole, tilts his head, and says, Ah! Fuck this! Leo looks over in the direction of the captain and the ghost hole, but not for too long. 
he doesn't want to watch it for an extended period of time. Speaking of, roll it with safe. 19. Okay, you're good. He's actually going to use his body to try to block Lorelai's line of sight on this thing. And leans over to squeeze at her shoulder. Hey, just don't mind that, okay? Let's get you upstairs. Come on. Lorelai gives you a weird look and tilts her head to the side. Okay. He glares around at the rest of the teen squad and then kind of jerks his head back over his shoulder at the ghost hole. I mean it. I better not see any of you fucking with that thing, okay? It's dangerous. Glasses, I'm speaking directly into your ear, young man. Glasses, who is stimming with a bundle of gears and wire and trying to lean around you to look at the ghost hole, goes, Aw. Bedtime! It's bedtime! Mia, can you take care of any... Bodies, before the kids go upstairs to find their rooms, please? Mia raises their eyebrows and says, Well do. And kind of swipes a hand across their mouth. And you hear a faint sizzle as the fingerless glove they have on that hand goes across their lips. And then they saunter up the stairs. (laughs) Anyway, is Sid still there with us? Oh, yes. (laughs) He looks incredibly awkward. He is just standing there swimming in his Hierophant's robes with his arms crossed over his chest, not looking at anybody. Okay, Your Holiness, I have a couple questions. I'm just going to go in order from most important to least important, if that's okay with you. Sid narrows his eyes at you and then says, Sure, lay him on me. Great, so of utmost importance, does your terrifying necromancy death tower have a liquor cabinet anywhere? I'm 75. Why would I know that? I knew the answer to that question when I was 75. Don't play coy. Sid narrows his eyes further at you. Third floor, second room on the left. Great, next thing down the line. Does your terrifying death tower have baths? Please. He jabs a thumb over his shoulder and says, They're in the outbuilding. And last question, I promise, but I'd be remiss to not ask because I am just so tired. Are there any sort of, you know, accommodations in the tower for the Archduke to stay in when he comes to visit? Sid looks you up and down, lip curling, and says, I'll let the Archduke know when he shows up. And then, to the group at large, he says, No one's allowed in my room. I have a harm spell. And then he goes up the stairs. Ooh, I'll let the Archduke know when he shows up, little fucking brat. I hope he comes for your ass first. (sighs) Anyway, Zed, Mom, we're all filthy. Let's go take a bath and go to bed. But first, the liquor cabinet. I'm going to find it. I'm going up to the third floor. Okay, uh, what's your passive perception again? 20. Are you gonna make me fucking dungeon crawl to get a nightcap after all I've been through today? You're the one that asked me to set up traps for the dungeon, my man. 
I am so very angry with you. <laughs> I use all my spell slots. I can't even cast fine traps. I'm vulnerable. It's okay. With a passive perception of 20, you notice that there is something rigged up against one of the walls of this hallway on the third floor. And you look up and see that there is a net rigged to fall off the ceiling. Yeah, no, see, I'm betting that the elder priests put that there to catch Sid if he wanted to go try to filch from what we're looking for, guys. Let's just... I'm gonna try to have us all skirt around it. Okay, roll decks. Okay, I'll take point, because fuck me, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Oh no! Oh my god. I rolled a natural one. You try really hard to scoot around where this net is. And as you're keeping an eye on it to try to scoot around it, you are not watching your feet. So you step directly onto one of the levers that releases this net, and it falls right on you. You don't take any damage, you're just under a net now. (laughs) Leo makes no effort to disentangle himself from this net. He just flops over on his back and stares up at the ceiling. Zed, honey. Zed, who was behind you and is not under the net, goes, Yeah, boss? Just go find the liquor cabinet, get the highest proof alcohol you can, just just come here and pour it in my mouth. I can't. I can't. <laughs> Zed is very obviously trying so hard not to laugh at you. Yep, will do. And then he heads off into the second room on the left. Your mom steps onto this net next to you and squats down to get on your level and says, Do you want some help, sweetie? Nope, nope. Just leave me here. Maybe I should just trance here, you know, since everything else about this fucking day has gone wrong! Leo does scream at the ceiling for a minute. Adana pats you on the head while you're still under this net. And then says, You know you've always been this overdramatic. I'd say I don't know where you got it from, but... <gasps> Over dramatic, overdramatic after the day that I have had? You know what? No, don't talk to me, don't help me, I'll get out myself. Adana messes up your hair and, very fondly, says, There's my boy. And then pulls a knife out of her boot and starts hacking away at the net. Is Zed back with the booze yet? I will not suffer this indignity sober. You know exactly when Zed emerges from this room, because as your mother is cutting through a third rope to try to get you out of this net, you hear, (laughs) (sighs) You two are probably the two people in the world who are the most well aware that I have a limited supply of goodwill. So I'd like you both to consider that before you continue dancing the Tordunian Tarantella upon my last nerve. Get me out of here! From the stairwell, you hear, Ah, do you three need some help? No, Eleonora, we're good. 
You have seen me at enough low points in my life. You hear Kalesa giggle. And then she says, Babe, you handled this. I'll see you in a minute. <laughs> and then footsteps on the stairs. And Eleonora comes around to where your mother is trying to cut this net open. And also squats down to get on your level. So, how's your night going? Not awesome. Yeah. And she's gonna help Adana cut you the rest of the way out of this net. As soon as he's up and mobile, he's just going to grab a bottle out of Zed's hand and start going for the stairs. From a couple floors above you, you hear the unmistakable sound of something igniting. And Kalesa goes, ah! And then, after a moment of silence, yells, Okay, nobody touch any statues. Yeah, great. Having a normal one, I love to be fun and cool and normal on the Death Island. <laughs> he heads down the stairs, out the front door of the lighthouse, and off to this outbuilding where the baths apparently are. Doesn't say anything else to anyone. Okay, you walk into this bathhouse that is here for the priesthood. It's pretty nice, but it's not on the, like, private room level of the royal baths in Valentall. So it's got, like, an entry room for dressing with a bunch of cubbies along the wall and a bunch of robes. I assume you go ahead and change into a robe and go in. As you are turning to go into the main bathhouse with your robe on, you catch your mom just staring into a mirror at herself, looking unstuck, as Talindra put it. <sighs> oh, shit. Leo sort of tightens the belt on his robe and goes in and sort of squats down next to her, putting one hand on her shoulder. Mom. Hey. Mama, are you okay? Adana shakes her head sharply, blinks a couple times. Oh, I'm, uh, I'm fine, sweetheart. Let's... And she kind of shakes herself off, gets up. No, no, sit down for a second. There's something I want to... What do I have to roll to look around and see if they have any, like cosmetic and grooming tools in these dressing rooms, I'd like to see if I can find, number one, a pair of scissors, and number two, like, hair tonics and stuff like that. There is a hairbrush and a pair of scissors in this dressing room, but you would have to go in the main baths to try and get any kind of soap. Okay, yeah. He just picks up this hairbrush and starts brushing her hair out. I'm sure it's bad. She hasn't had an actual bath in 75 years, probably. Yeah, it's nasty. It'll take a lot of work to brush it out. It's at the point where, like, the convenient solution seems to be just cutting the rest of it off. Yeah, no, that's not an option. He's doing his best to brush her hair out without making it hurt and just putting on a big fake smile in the mirror over her shoulder. You remember when my hair used to get tangled like this? 
how could I forget? You were always running around in the garden getting leaves stuck in it. <laughs> yeah, and you would cuss. Under your breath, you thought I couldn't hear it, but I could. I always wanted hair like yours. It was so pretty. <laughs> well, maybe if Kalesa would stop daring you to climb trees, or you would stop saying yes. And then she stops, and her eyebrows draw together, and she shakes her head. No, no, I'm, I'm sorry, hold on. Leo finishes brushing her hair out and picks up the scissors, starts trimming away at any of the mats he couldn't get, trying very hard to look like everything is okay, but his jaw is clenched so hard that his teeth creak. No, no, it's okay. Um, Mom? Where are we? We're... We're at the baths. Which baths? I... Mm. And she shakes her head sharply, closing her eyes. <sighs> We're on Luxagolan. That's where we are. Yeah, you're right. Thank you. Um, hold still for a second. I know that he doesn't have any spell slots left. Is there any mechanical sacrifice I can make for Leo to be able to try to subtly get like a greater restoration or a break curse into her as he's helping her with her hair? Uh, yeah. Roll me a con save real quick. Nat 20. Leo loves his mom a lot. That's a 23, baby. Okay. Do you want to take... 2d12 damage, or do you want to take a level of exhaustion? Uh, I mean, we're going to bed right after this. I can sleep off that level of exhaustion. I'll just take it. Okay. So, you have disadvantage on all ability checks until you manage to sleep this off, but you manage to get off a greater restoration as you're sitting there trying to fix Adana's hair. It has no effect. Leo grimaces and, under his breath, whispers, God, what did he do to you? Adana half turns with your hand still in her hair and goes, What? Um, nothing. I just... Leo's being very careful in attempts to keep her grounded, but he wants to dig into this a little further to see if there's any way he could potentially help her. I was just thinking about something silly. Do you remember when I was little and I would get those night terrors? I would wake up screaming my head off in the middle of the night. Uh, yes, you... You would always run into our chambers and just dive under the covers. I was just thinking how you were always the one that would hold me, but father was always the one that would tell me it was just a dream and how I'd always feel better after that Adana had been starting to smile a little bit thinking back on fond memories but the smile slips yes yeah he was always good at that he was uh he was the only one that could calm you down when you were a baby. You were colicky, and I 
didn't do well with loud noises a lot of the time. I was tired and scattered for the first few months. Yeah, that makes sense. Being loud's always kind of been my thing, but I guess I'm just wondering, is there anything that can fix that type of ability when it goes wrong? When it hurts people? I, I, I don't, I don't. She shakes her head again. Most enchantment magic isn't permanent. It's usually harmless. Until it's not. I'm talking nonsense. Mom, where are we? The baths. Where? Um. She shakes her head again. Looks to Golan. Where? The baths on looks to Golan. Who am I? My Leo. Yeah, exactly right. Go take your bath and take your trance. There should be something to help get the hydration back into your hair in there. I'll see you in the morning, okay? She stands up, shakes her head again, turns to look at you, and frowns. Are you alright, sweetheart? Never better. And Leo is going to go take a bath and wash his own hair before he fucking has a breakdown in front of his mom. You head into one of the bathtubs in the big main room. They are all partitioned apart from each other with big screens. There are a bunch of them. And as you are coming up from, I think, dunking your head so you can rinse your hair out, Zed comes over and sits down on the edge of the tub next to you holding a bottle of something from the liquor cabinet in one hand and taking his hair out of its ponytail with the other. He gives you the up and down and nods and says, Sup, boss? <laughs> Zed Stonebloom do not proposition me right now. That Australian wine, however, hand it over. He raises his eyebrows, takes a big swig out of the bottle himself first, and then hands it over. Leo hasn't had good Australian wine since season one. He's chugging that shit. Zed slips all the way into the bathtub and just looks at you for a second and then says, So, uh, it occurs to me I might need to clear some things up. Oh, I feel like I should be the one that's clearing things up right now, given, you know, the Death Island and the Ghost Hole and the generational trauma, but that's nice of you to say, Zed. What would you like to clear up? Zed gives you a look and then says, Okay, so you're kind of stressed. You want me to wash your hair while we have this talk? Oh my god, that sounds so good, actually. Zed reaches and grabs something off a shelf next to the bathtub and hands it to you, and it is the correct shampoo. That's great. Leo's not questioning it. He just dumps a bunch of it on top of his head. Zed kind of manhandles you so you're leaned up against his chest and starts lathering shampoo through your hair. And as he's doing that, he very awkwardly says, So, uh, 83%, huh? 
Now, honey, were you not listening to my mother in the moments after we killed the horrifying undead creature in the crypt full of my ancestors? We're up to 86% now. Zed's fingers go very still in your hair for a second. Yep, sure. You feel like he's gearing up to say something. And then from around one of the privacy screens, Sabine's head pokes out. 86% of what? Leo swipes some suds out from over his eyes and glares at her. 86% chance of you not minding your fucking business. Sabine puts a hand up and says, don't mind me, I'm just here for booze. And then she points to Zed's right and says, throw it over. I got trapped under a net for that shit. You're going to have to work a little harder. Sabine narrows her eyes at you. Leo, do you want to give me the wine or do you want me to keep poking my nose in your business? I'm the oldest of ten. I can be very nosy. Leo narrows his eyes back at her just as hard, but then reaches out and grabs one of the bottles that they brought down from the liquor cabinet. This is a fucking protection racket, Javaris. And it's working. Cursing colorfully under his breath, Leo hands her a bottle. She snatches it out of your hand and gives you a big, bright smile and says, Thank you for doing business. And she swans off back behind this privacy screen. And after a moment, you hear a soft splash and Fee giggling quietly and the sound of someone kissing. It's super gross. You know what? Suddenly I have fewer concerns about us having this conversation. Go ahead, honey. Zed snorts and picks up a little bowl next to the bathtub and you feel water sluicing over your hair. We don't have to uh, get in depth about it, but I just wanted to make it clear that I... uh, Don't object to having the conversation. I just wanted it to be a conversation that we had and not something that I heard from your mother. I mean, I can get behind that sentiment, but also I understand why it's not a conversation we can have right now. Speaking of which, are you... It seems insensitive to ask if you're okay. I know it's been a rough couple weeks, and that I disappeared on you again. I just want to know that you're... (laughs) Is the word you're looking for sober? The word I'm looking for is okay, but I'll take sober as a close second, yeah. There's a long beat of silence. You feel something cold being massaged into your hair. And then Zed says, Are these two different conversations we're having, or are they related for you? I mean, that's a hard question to answer. I guess that in the long run, I am never going to stop being scared of being the person that hurts everyone I love. But when I think about my future... (laughs) Fuck if I even have one after all this. 
I can't picture it without you. Zed's hands go still in your hair again. Yeah, me either. Do you think there's a world where we can both be okay, Zed? (sighs) I don't know. I hope so. I wanna think so. You feel water running through your hair again. And he says, Anyway, the answer to the question is yes, I'm sober. Well, I'm tipsy, but... I got more people looking out for me than just you. Yeah, same here. Maybe that's gonna be our saving grace in the end, huh? (laughs) Yeah, fuck knows we're both disasters. And then he dunks you under the bathwater. <laughs> as soon as Leo is able to reemerge, he splashes Zed as hard as he can. Zed laughs and then goes under the water himself and comes up, shaking wet hair out of his face and just grabs you and kisses you. Leo kisses him back and then gently bonks him on the forehead and hops out of the tub, grabbing for a towel and his robe. Oh yeah, disasters, the two of us. 86%. Zed grins at you and opens his mouth to say something, and then from several tubs down you hear, 90! And Zed looks back to where your mother's voice is coming from, looks back at you and says, I'm getting the fuck out of this bathtub. 90, 90%, yeah, I'm, uh, let's go, let's go find a bed. Bed. Bed sounds good. Yep, for sleeping. Oh yeah, sleeping. Nothing happening in the bed. 90%. Oh, fuck. (laughs) Fee, you end up finding out the hard way that it is very difficult to have a victorious post-battle makeout with your boyfriend and your girlfriend while your brother is on the other side of a privacy screen having a talk about trauma and family planning with his boyfriend. Can't have shit in Australia. You really can't. You, Sabine, and the captain all extract yourselves from the bathtub that you are sitting in and put your robes back on, get ready to go to bed, exit the baths. Leo and Zed have left ahead of you, and you stick around at the door to this outbuilding just long enough to see Adana coming out in a robe, damp hair coming down her back, still trying to kind of fuss with it. And as you leave, several other members of your party are in the process of walking into the baths, namely Celica, Arave, and Verity. Selica pauses in the doorway and reaches up to kind of help Adana with detangling part of her hair and frowns. Okay, no, let me help you with that, come on. And sort of ushers her off into the darkness back towards the tower as Erevay and Verity go to take their baths. You and Sabine and the captain all make your way towards the tower up the spiral staircase through several floors before you land on a floor of the lighthouse that feels weirdly familiar. You can't place why. 
you see one door on the other side of this circular hallway closing behind Leo and Zed as they head off to bed. What are you doing? Fee looks around this hallway for a second, shakes her head, and gives Leo and Zed a little wave. Uh, good night. See you in the morning. There are two other doors on this floor, both of which are standing open. You can smell something acidic and caustic in the air, but nobody's in either of these other two rooms. Yeah, he's gonna grab the captain and Sabine and just tug them into the room across the hall from the one that Leo and Zed are going in. The room you walk into also feels oddly familiar, but you can't figure out why. The furniture is typical Australian in build, big, king-size bed, four-poster, heavy velvet curtains on each corner, the windows closed, there's a fireplace smoldering in one corner, the coals dying. Looks comfortable enough. Everybody else is bunking down for the night. Do you want to bunk down in here? Yeah. She's going to change into something she can sleep in and crawl into the middle of this bed, curling up around a pillow. The three of you crawl into this bed after a night of absolute pandemonium. The captain is out before his head hits the pillow. He is snoring almost immediately. On your other side, Sabine looks at you for a long moment, reaches up to press a hand against your cheek, and kisses you very softly before rolling over onto her other side and also falling into her trance. Are you gonna try to knock out for the night too, or? Uh, yeah, I think Fee's gonna just fling one leg over the captain's and curl an arm around Sabine. And try as hard as she can to fall into her trance. It's hard. It is the wee hours of the morning, and you have had a long, stressful day, and you are exhausted. But there is something that makes going into your trance feel almost impossible. As you're laying there in this bed, curled up between the captain and Sabine... You can hear a low rumble of thunder off the coast of the island, and the loud crash of waves hitting the shore more and more forcefully. Whatever sort of environment this is, restful is not the word that you would apply to it. But eventually, your physical fatigue does win out, and you start to fall into your trance. What's your passive perception fee? Uh-oh. Fourteen? You are in that very beginning stage of going into your trance, where you are still fully aware of your surroundings, but your body has already detached from your mind. You can't really move, but you can see and hear and perceive everything around you. Something very strange happens. In that moment where your mind and your body disconnect, you are aware of a shift between 
the feeling of the captain and Sabine on either side of you in this big four-poster bed, and an environment where you are laying by yourself on a much narrower mattress. As you are laying there, staring straight ahead, you see something odd. In the light of the dying coals of this fireplace in the corner that has not moved or changed, a small silhouette makes its way over to the edge of this bed and sits down. It takes a while for your eyes to adjust to the low light, but eventually you see a small boy, the equivalent of seven, eight years old, long, stark white hair, curling bone-like horns coming back from his forehead, big blue eyes with slit pupils, all iris. He reaches out and grabs your hand, and for the first time in a while, you feel safe. Hey, are you having trouble trancing? I know how the storms scare you sometimes. Um... Yeah. Yeah, I am. It's okay. I'm here. Take your trance. Fee, whether or not you want to, you do. You emerge from your trance to the sound of a fist pounding against a wooden door. As you regain consciousness, you can perceive gentle morning light washing across your face, sort of muted, almost as if reflected off of a solid surface or a ceiling. You are in a bed similar to the one you last remember yourself being in, alone, twin mattress, and from the other side of this door, rattling on its hinges as someone pounds upon it, you hear a bright, flamboyant tenor voice. All right, sunshine, up and at him. It's a brand new day, and if you'd like to start it off with breakfast, I would get moving. What? What? I... Fee gets up and goes to open the door. You are in a very small but very cozy bedroom. Simple wood-paneled floors utilitarian twin bed frame tucked up against a wall, soft light coming in through a window with purple curtains. There is a simple writing desk tucked into the far corner, laden down with notebooks of poetry and prose and random notes. You get out of bed, stumble a few steps towards the door. Again, the room is not big. And open it up to see a tall, slender, infernal elf man in a dressing gown. Pale lavender skin, neatly trimmed goatee, curly black hair, sort of loose and frizzy around his horns. And your uncle, of course, why wouldn't it be? Tilts his head at you and goes, Oh, so you got home Real late last night, huh? <laughs> yeah, must have. 
your uncle Ador leans in and claps you on the shoulder, sort of rattles you back and forth a little bit. I'll tell you the secret, kid. I keep a flask under the loose floorboard in my bedroom, and when I wake up in the morning and I don't want your mom to judge me, little hair of the dog. He takes his hand off of your shoulder and ruffles your hair before leaning back into the hallway and starting down towards the stairs. I won't tell if you won't. <laughs> Appreciate it. Fee's gonna head down the stairs with him. Feeling somehow wrong in a way that you can't place, you walk down these stairs into a very simply furnished but loving foyer, almost automatically turn off to your right and see a simple kitchen with a spindly-legged wooden table. Your uncle is already busy taking his seat, and you look around at the other people here and see an infernal elf woman with light purple skin, long curling black hair with a few streaks of gray in it, black horns, busying herself over making a cup of tea, and a very small infernal elf girl with sort of darker purple skin, but the same curly black hair and horn pattern, who is slathering an unholy amount of strawberry jelly onto an English muffin. Yeah, I'm gonna ruffle Courage's hair and then take a seat next to her. Your little sister sticks her tongue out at you and elbows you in the side. Hey, what's a club? I'm going to steal half of her English muffin and take a big bite out of it and then go, mm. you mean like an organization or like the weapon? Courage's eyebrows creep up very far on her forehead and she says, oh, no, um, I mean, something I heard last night. Oh, I have work tomorrow. I can't go to the club. And then five hours later, God, I love the club. I'm gonna look out of the corner of my eye over at my mom and see if she heard that. She is so busy steeping her cup of tea, but there is just a little quirk at the corner of her mouth. I turn back to Courage and say, I don't remember hearing anything like that. Oh yeah, well that makes sense, doesn't it, Fee? You don't ever hear anything you say. You know, things like, yeah, Courage, I'll take you to the museum this weekend. Of course we'll go to the bakery afterwards. That's right, we were gonna go to the museum as a reward for you doing my chores this weekend. Since I have to work. Your uncle is barely keeping his shit together as he sprinkles salt on half of a grapefruit. Your mother, however, looks more than a little frazzled as she sits her teacup down in its saucer. Girls, please, can we have a ceasefire? It is six o'clock in the morning. Yes, Mama. And Fee eats the rest of this half of English muffin. From the space beside you that you could have sworn was empty a second ago, you hear, Um, can someone pass the butter? Fee looks over to where this voice is coming from. In a chair that definitely was not there before, Kiva's just hanging out. 
electric blue eyes crackling in the shadows of her hood, she reaches out and closes one hand around yours. Ferora, wake up. Fee, you regain consciousness in a big, plush bed. Soft sunlight filtering through a tall window. And the smells and sounds of a southern Australian morning. Seagulls crying on the beach, waves crashing on the shore, a slight tinge of salt on your tongue as you breathe in. And someone is knocking very gently at your door. I'm gonna get up and go open it. Your feet hit plush carpet. There's a delicate silk dressing gown draped over the back of a chair right next to your bed that you pull on as you head for this door. And you open it to Alasha Dakarin standing out in the hallway. As you look around at the architecture, the big stone breezeways, the tall open windows, you realize that you are in the Summer Palace, the Australian royal family's vacation home. Of course you are. Elasha is also still in her pajamas, leaning on her cane in the hallway and reaching up to run a hand back through her hair, looking like she has a bit of a headache. Okay, I think we all overdid it a bit last night. Everybody gets a mulligan. I want something greasy and covered in cheese. How about you? <laughs> that sounds wonderful. Uh, should we hit the bistro on the corner, or is someone going to cook? She grins and reaches up one hand to press a palm against the side of your face. <laughs> Sweet girl, I ordered takeout because I'm the only competent person here. It's already downstairs. Let's go. <laughs> oh, fantastic. Fee's gonna head down the stairs. As you reach the bottom of the staircase and hang the right turn down the hallway towards the dining room, you hear a distant voice bouncing off the stone of the hallway. And so then I told him, that's why you don't bet against a Tormer in an eating contest or a Valsine in a drinking contest. And then you hear the unmistakable sound of your brother just cackling. Ugh, not this story again. You walk into the dining room and see your father sitting at the head of a table, working his way through a cup of tea and a very greasy looking breakfast plate. Leo is in the chair next to him, leaning back against the top of his chair. He's laughing so hard. And on Leo's other side, Soren Shakrana is fully asleep at the table with his head down in his folded arms, looking wrecked. Fee's gonna take her seat on her father's other side. As she's sitting down, she says, You've told this one ten times in the past week, father, please. Well, see, darling, the thing that they say about good comedy is that it's always timeless. Laryl thinks it's funny. Leo had been composing himself and then fully snorts into his cup of coffee and makes a pained noise. Laryl is still drunk from last night. 
Fee grabs herself a cup of coffee and looks over at Soren and says, Soren, you're getting eggs in your hair. Soren, more like a zombie than a man, reaches up and bats some of the eggs out of his hair. Uh. Solid comeback. Fee's gonna dig into her breakfast. It's a delicious breakfast. On a beautiful morning at the Summer Palace, with your family around you. There's a certain peace here. You just can't understand why there's something anxious undercutting it. Your perspective warps for a second, and you're not quite sure what happens between you sitting there flicking scrambled eggs off your spoon across the table at your brother, and you standing out on a beach with your family. The waves are licking up around your ankles. You can feel the sun baking down on your back. And from several yards away, out in the waves, Leo is floating on his back, doing his best to splash water at you. Are you still worried about your hair? Come on, the water's fine. Fee laughs and splashes him back. I don't want to hear any comments about me worrying about my hair from you. From directly behind you, you hear, Ah, damn, who forgot the beach umbrella? Fee turns. Standing on this beach, seemingly moving beneath the notice of your family, Kiva is standing there. She reaches out her free hand and presses a palm to the side of your face. Ferrora, wake up! Fee, you regain consciousness to sunlight beating down on your skin, the feeling of soft, hot, dry sand beneath your back, and two shadows looming over you. Fee looks up. The captain and Sabine are both looking down at you with absolute shit-eating grins. The captain's hair is kind of damp, curling up into those salty waves that it does after he's been swimming. And Sabine is wrapped in a towel, holding an open paperback trashy romance novel in one hand. You are on a very familiar beach in the Zephyr Isles. Of course you are. It is a gorgeous afternoon in the middle of summer. And further down the shore, you can hear the crew of the ship having fun, talking, laughing, eating, drinking. Sorry, I must have dozed off. Sabine smirks down at you and raises an eyebrow. I mean, don't apologize to us, apologize to that sunburn here in a couple hours. Anyway, hate to wake you, darling, but you and Boots want to get a game of water polo started and we're short one. <laughs> I'm assuming, love, that I'll be on the team opposite you since you don't like to lose. Oh no, I was figuring we could all be on one team this time. You remember how bitter the captain got when I won that favor off of him in poker and then he didn't talk to me for a week? I remember you cheating at that game of poker, yes. The captain's mouth drops open, scandalized, as he turns around to look at Sabine. You swore to me, woman! 
Sabine gives you a look that clearly conveys the sentiment of fucking narc. And she reaches down to grab your wrist and help you to your feet. Come on, they're going to start without us. Fee gets to her feet and starts walking towards the water. The captain runs up and grabs your free hand, and they both lead you down into the surf. A few yards away, you can see your crewmates, your family, throwing a ball back and forth out in the water, laughing and talking trash to each other. You and Sunshine are attempting to float some buoys out in the waves. You see Leo and Zed, who are set up on opposite teams, ready to absolutely destroy each other. And before you have time to notice it, you feel someone's hands on your shoulders, playfully dunking you down into the water. The yelps. (laughs) Yeah, but you don't hear it. Fee, you've always been a pretty strong swimmer, but suddenly, it's like your limbs are made of lead. And something strange happens to your perception. It warps and then clarifies once again. And everything around you is so dark and so cold. You open your mouth to yell again and feel frigid, salty water get gasped into your lungs. You want to swim for the surface, but for some reason you just can't. And then from behind you, you feel two cold hands close around both of your shoulders, and a voice in your ear says, Ferrora, wake up! This place does not get to hurt you the way it hurt me. Wake! Up! Fee wakes up. So you do. A couple meters underwater in the ocean along the shores of Luxtogallen. Drowning. Your body does remember how to swim, though. You flail, confused, panicked, fighting for survival. And then, out of the very edge of your peripheral vision, you see a glow in this pitch black water and one gleaming hand reaches down wraps around your forearm and yanks you towards the surface you breach the top of this water coughing and sputtering fighting just to stay up and the captain loops one arm under yours and hauls you back towards the shore fee is exhausted and confused but she trusts the captain she doesn't fight him you get hauled up into the last remnants of foamy waves along the damp black sand of this beach and the captain lets you both just fall in a heap before flopping over to stare at you wide-eyed lost what in Kiva's name I woke up to see a leak and you were gone and I looked out the window and saw you fucking walking into the ocean. Fee coughs up a lungful of salt water and just... <coughs> I wasn't... I, I wasn't awake. I, I... Fee, you've never transwalked in the entire time I've known you. What the fuck is going on? I, I don't... 
I don't know. I... Where's Leo? Leo, it takes you a weirdly long time to fall into your trance. You are laying there with Zed snoring in your ear for what must be hours. And then, as you start to drift off, as your limbs go heavy and your mind goes slow, the door to the room you're sleeping in opens, and a small shape starts to cross the floor. With how dim the lights are, you could almost mistake this figure for a very young fee. It's just this little kid with dark hair and dark curling horns. Maybe like the equivalent of seven. Tiptoeing across the floor and coming to sit down on the edge of your bed. Psst. Leo, feeling extremely heavy, blinks over at this figure. Yeah, what? You okay? This little kid looks at you Eyes extremely big in the dim moonlight coming in through your window. Big and silver with slit pupils. No whites, all iris. I had one of the dreams again. What dreams? She reaches out and touches your forehead. Leo, you're in bed. At home. There is sunlight streaming in through the window. And you can hear the sounds of children laughing. Distantly. He's gonna sit up in bed. As you do that, from the other side of the bed, you hear... (sighs) Soren shifts, throws an arm over his face... And with a wry, sleepy smirk, says, Well, I guess we should go make sure they're not killing each other. Leo laughs and leans down to kiss him on the forehead. (laughs) I don't hear anyone crying for help or vindication, so I'm more worried about property damage at this point. (laughs) Nonetheless, he sits up, facing away from you throws on a dressing gown, and starts to walk out. I follow him. He walks ahead of you down the hall and then down the stairs. And as he hits the bottom of the stairs, he yells, Girls, it is way too early in the morning for this. You hit the bottom step, and there are two young, the equivalent of like about 10 and 13, maybe, girls in the living room of this house that you find yourself in, looking toward you guiltily. There's something weird about their eyes. But the younger of them, and she looks so much like Soren. Not Exactly. He looks more like his mother, and she takes after his father. 
She smiles real big. I mean, we weren't doing anything wrong. Leo crosses both arms over his chest and quirks an eyebrow at her. Baby, remember that conversation where we talked about how you and I have different definitions of wrong? This little girl, Ophelia, tilts her head back and just looks at the ceiling and groans. <sighs> yeah, I remember that. And the older of these little girls, Ashrin, grins smugly. She doesn't really look like you or Soren. She has a similar coloring to you. She's very pale. She has white hair. But you don't know where she got her facial features from. And there's something wrong with her eyes. But she grins super smug at Ophelia and says, I'm pretty sure most people think stealing is wrong. <sighs> okay. Conflict checklist. Is anybody hurt? In unison, they say, no. Is anybody dead? No. Is there anything that I'm gonna have to pay for? <sighs> no. Is this anything I need to deal with before I have had my coffee? Ophelia says no, and Ashen says yes. <sighs> Ash, you have the floor. One minute. She's stealing things out of my room again. Evidence? Ask her to turn out her pockets. Leo looks over his shoulder at Soren, trying very hard not to laugh. Alright, well, you're on the high court. Do I need a warrant for this? Soren puts a hand up to his mouth, and there's something wrong with his eye. But he shakes his head and he says, You know what? I'll let it slide this one time. <sighs> pockets now. Ophelia sticks both hands in her pockets and pulls them out and opens them palm up. And there's something strange in them. Fragments of bone and spiders and stones. And she's holding, sure enough, a container of very nice lip gloss that you know is Ashrin's. Leo takes two big stumbling steps back. What the f-, f fudge? Um, sorry, this is why you- This is why you two shouldn't bring things up before coffee. Um, <sighs> Fee, give your sister her lip gloss back now, please. <sighs> Fine. She closes her hand into a fist around this lip gloss container and just holds it out to Ashrin without looking at her and opens her fist and something's wrong, something's wrong, something's wrong. And Ash takes the container of lip gloss and grins like the cat that got the cream. Uh, are you both okay? Is everyone okay? Hold on. The girls look at each other, frown. And in unison, say, we're okay. Soren steps forward and puts a hand on your shoulder, and something's wrong, something's wrong. Are you okay? You seem kind of out of it. 
Yeah, schedule's out of whack, I guess. Okay, girls, respecting each other's personal space means respecting each other's personal pro- Property. Good talk, everybody. Let's- Let's get on with the day. You're in Soren's office. He's going through papers, writing something down, saying- uh, yeah, I should be free in about, uh, ten minutes. Leo staggers back and then catches himself, sort of shakes his head. Uh, sure. Sure, what? What were we just talking about? He looks up at you, frowns. Lunch, dear. I told you I have a little bit of paperwork I have to get done before I leave, but after that I'm all yours. Are you? He looks up from his papers and tilts his head and something's wrong with his eyes and says, what's that supposed to mean? I, I don't know. I'm sorry. I guess I'm just feeling a little unstuck. Okay. I'll meet you downstairs in about ten minutes if you want to go sit down. Yeah, yeah, that's for the best. Where where are the girls? They're with my mother. What are you talking about? Nothing. Sorry, I'm being stupid. Leo's gonna walk out and go downstairs. You walk downstairs into the lobby of the high court offices in Valentall, and your uncle's sitting there. Valar and Valsine, with the circlet of the Archduke on his head, reclines easily in a chair, his cane in one hand, and one gesticulating as he talks to his wife, Adriel. Too fast, too fast. Their heads snap over to the side, and they both give you big smiles. And Val raises a hand in a wave and says, Ah, if it isn't my favorite nephew. Leo freezes, one hand white-knuckled around the doorframe, and then straightens up and shakes his head. (laughs) Yeah, well, considering the competition, that's not really a compliment. Don't let Gerana hear you say that. He turns back to Adriel, and something's wrong. He says, Dear, do you mind if I abandon you for a few moments to get some air? Adriel rolls her eyes and something's wrong with them, and says, yeah, go. Val crosses the lobby in a few steps and holds an elbow out to you. You know I could use a chaperone, me and my constitution. Has anyone else ever asked you how you managed to get this far politically and still have no subtlety? Obviously, this is going to be a conversation. Fine. (laughs) He makes a vague gesture with his free hand and taps his cane authoritatively. Well, I know when I've been caught out. Walk with me. (sighs) With all due respect, your majesty, make it quick. Do you know how hard it is to get a lunch appointment with a member of the high court, even if he's your husband? (laughs) Vividly aware. And he loops his arm through yours and tows you out the front door of the offices. 
As you're going, he says, You're going to the usual spot for lunch, right? I'll just take you there. I'm sure Lord Shakana will meet us. Yeah, yeah, the usual spot. Um, what's the usual spot? You find yourself in a restaurant. Your uncle slides into a booth and nods at the chair across the table. Sit, sit. Uh, I... Yes, sorry. Leo's gonna sit down. Your uncle smiles at you and says, Laryl, I have a bit of a proposition. Well, that's never fun. No, no, it's a good one. It's a good one. He flags down a waitress, orders himself a cup of tea, and then turns back to you and says, You know you're like a son to me, right? I know it doesn't make up for what happened to your father, but I've done my best. You know that. Do I? Well, I would hope so. His eyebrows draw together, and something is wrong with his eyes. They're flat and glassy like a doll. Something wrong, something's wrong. He says, I know you like to play your little practical jokes, Lairl, but please be serious. I am. I'm serious. I'm dead serious. I Something's not... Sorry, sorry, I've been off lately. Of of course I know, you've you've given me everything. No one could ask for more. That's very kind of you to say. You know that, despite how Adriel and I have tried, we don't have any children of our own. It leaves a bit of a hole in the succession. One that I would very much appreciate it, if you would agree to fill. Leo feels sick and he doesn't know why. But but what about your other siblings? I mean, there's Auntie Nora and Auntie Gerana and Uncle Boreas. There's... there are people ahead of me. People with their own lives far from Valentol, whose spouses are not already involved in the government. Now that the girls don't need you all the time, I figured it would just be easiest on everyone, if I asked you. I don't want it. I don't want it. I'm sorry. I don't want it. He tilts his head at you. Don't you? And the world jitters out of focus and something's wrong, something's wrong. And the teacup on the table is full of some kind of writhing sludge. And his eyes are finally clear. They finally look human. And he looks at you and he says, Run! Oh yeah, Leo fucking books it. He's up, he's running. And you're back at home. You're on your back porch, looking down the hill at a little pond in your backyard. Soren and the girls are playing, splashing each other. He looks up at you, and he calls, Hey, you're finally home! Am I? He doesn't even acknowledge that you said that. He just waves, beckons you closer. Come on in. We've been waiting. 
Leo walks down towards this pond and tries to figure out why he can and can't remember it. You stand at the very edge of this drop into the water. Soren and Ophelia and Ashran are all looking up at you, smiling big and sweet, their eyes glassy and cold. Come on in. We've been waiting. Leo has his toes curled around the edge of this drop-off and can't figure out why he wants to turn around and run. Soren's closer than he was a moment ago. Right below you, looking up. From behind you, you hear distantly, as if down a long hallway, someone yell, Leo! And Soren, again, smiling, says, Come on in. We've been waiting. He looks down at Soren and smiles. And then he jumps. And you are startled back into consciousness as you hit the floor with a crushing impact. It hurts. Everything hurts. As you hit the stone of the first floor of this lighthouse, you are rolled roughly from your side onto your back. Zed is clutching at your shoulders, yelling something. You can see it from the way his face is moving, but you cannot hear him. Because as the light in this circle of stones that he's tackled you away from flares, you are hearing hundreds upon hundreds, thousands upon thousands of voices, all moaning and then wailing and then shrieking in unison. Come on in. We've been waiting. Come on Come in. on in. We've been waiting. And then you black out. And that's where we're gonna end for this week. Damn. Lux Togolin sucks, dude. <laughs> sure does. <laughs> And we'll see more next time. Uncompelled duel. Hey everybody, Barry here with the postscript. Just clearing up a couple housekeeping things here at the end of the episode. As always, I'm going to go ahead and plug our social media profiles. You can find us on Twitter, Tumblr, and TikTok at Compelled Duel. We have lots of other cool stuff going on, however. An official website, an official Spotify profile, our official merch store, stuff like that. You can find all that stuff linked on any of our various social media profiles. If you're interested in supporting the show, we ask that you consider heading over to patreon.com slash compelled duel, where starting at just $2 a month, you can get access to all kinds of cool patron perks, including early access to episodes, access to exclusive playlists and bonus content, and even handwritten letters from your favorite character every month. If you're interested in supporting the show in ways other than pledging to our Patreon, We ask that if you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, that you leave us a rating and a review, since that helps the show get promoted to a wider audience. 
We host a weekly Q&A show on our YouTube every week, and we would love to see you show up for that, ask a couple questions. We always have a really fun time. And as always, if you like what you're hearing on the show, we ask that you just tell a couple friends about it. And if they like it, ask them to tell a couple friends as well. Word of mouth advertising is the most powerful tool we have at our disposal. Our next episode will be going live on Friday, May 6th, 2022. Or if you're a member of our Patreon, you'll be getting your early access to that on Thursday, May 5th. Thank you guys so much, and we'll see you next week.